You're listening to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor podcast. And in general, the banking system is extremely sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, Silicon Valley was, it, it, it was a kind of unique situation with its business model, but also how they chose to make those investments. On the Friday afternoon of Friday, March 10th, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. The impacts immediately reverberated across the startup and venture capital ecosystem. Funds and founders alike rushed to withdraw capital from the failed bank that once provided so much support and access to the same companies. The Endeavor network was not immune. Endeavor entrepreneurs, mentors, board members, and staff immediately mobilized to identify who was impacted and how to support. With a mission to support founders in overlooked and emerging markets, Endeavor entrepreneurs were fortunately less exposed than high-growth companies in the Bay Area. One particular Endeavor mentor, Mac Thompson, is a leading expert in banking, economics, and finance. Thompson is currently the co-founder and CEO of White Clay, a pricing and profitability software platform for regional and community banks. He previously led payments for Bank of America and teaching and teaches, excuse me, banking courses for the American Banking Association at the Wharton School of Business. And we are fortunate to have Mac Thompson here with us today. Welcome, Mac. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So if you could, I, you know, I know I briefly talked about kind of like your, your background and co-founding White Clay and everything like that, but give us a little bit more history into to kind of what brought you to the space and, and what you've learned. <laughs> Um, so I got into banking straight out of college. I did not have a degree in banking or in technology. It was accounting in English. Uh, it was a recession of the early 90s, and I needed a job. So uh, Bank One was who originally hired me. Bank One eventually turned into Chase. Um, but at Bank One, when I was in accounting, um, the technology was beginning to get into the banks. Okay. I had I started using computers when I was very young. I had a very high aptitude for them. And I began transforming a lot of their manual processes into software. And so over the course of years, I ended up building all kinds of systems for those banks, as well as Bank of America uh, when I transitioned over there. So uh, we left back into that when I, so we used to build all kinds of ways to take data and do things with them to help the shareholder and help the client. Um, And when I left in 2006, we wanted to build those same kind of tools and make them available for community and regional banks. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, so it seems like you really understand the the systems and, as you mentioned, the kind of the mechanics behind it. So um, for us, like, I guess in layman's terms, right, can you briefly explain the mechanics of what actually happened that day uh, during the SVB collapse? Uh, well, what happened on the 10th um, was the California regulators uh, shut them down and then handed over receivership to the FDIC. What was driving that uh, was... Prior day, I think they had withdrawn somewhere around $43 billion with 170-something billion dollars deposits. But on the 10th itself, it looked like another $100 billion was going to go out the door. So $143 billion was attempted to be, in total, was attempted to be withdrawn, which would have made the bank insolvent from a cash perspective. Um, that was what technically happened that day. And it's it's a run on a, it's a, a stereotypical run on a bank. Um which is driven by a number. Do we get into the number? Yeah, of I was going to say. So that's a perfect segue into the next question. Yeah. So what were kind of the driving forces and in, in efforts behind kind of like what pushed it to happen? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll start. I'll start with a little background of Silicon Valley because this is a 
It was a bank that had about $8 billion or so of deposits back in 2008. Uh, 2009, it had somewhere in the range of 60 billion, excuse me, 2000, 2019, going into 2020, it had about, I'll call it $60 billion worth of deposits. Uh, but by the end of 2022, it had about 173 billion. You're talking about a bank that had grown from a, a small regional to, to a, a large regional to a small super regional. And it ha happened fairly quickly. I mean, the last growth spur between 60 and 170 billion in a couple of years is a tremendous amount of growth. Absolutely. A lot of that was driven by the influx of cash into the, these high growth companies through their venture capital firms and related parties. Um, the first thing was it was, a, it was a very rapidly growing company. And one of the questions I would have had was, did the governance grow with it? Because I think if governance had been in place for a $200 billion bank, probably wouldn't run into some of these things. But that's kind of like a background reason. Sure. The second, what they did tactically was um, with this, all this influx of deposits, uh, most banks take most of their deposits and lend them out and they keep a smaller portion in investments, just typical bank structure. Okay. Silicon Valley uh, didn't do that. They put instead had put about 118 billion of those $170 billion in, into investments. And something they did in the investments, then they went, you know, they were mostly in treasuries and uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie, mortgage-backed securities, usually with government entities, which okay. sound fairly safe. Sure. The problem they got into was they bet those were all, almost all three years and longer mortgage bonds. So that all occurred right before interest rates started going up. Mm. So last summer, when interest rates started moving, uh, as interest rates go up, bond value goes down. Because the, uh, an investor could, you know, if you want to buy a treasury bond, what you bought it at, at a lower interest rate, and now you can buy it at a higher interest rate, the one of the lower interest rates worth uh, slightly less, you know, it, it, there's a cash flow of this and in terms of MPVs essentially of the value, but it goes down in value. Well, they did not unwind those positions as the interest rate market, interest rate environment changed. And so as they kept going, that loss kept getting greater and greater. Uh, the other piece is, while I had some of the bonds were in a, um, a trading portfolio, we'll call it from accounting treatments, majority of it was in a held to maturity accounting status, which means they didn't have to mark to market the devaluation of those funds. Okay. Uh, and as of 1231, they had about $17 billion worth of unrealized loss related to those funds. Well, the problem was they only had about $15 billion worth of capital. So if you had had to sell everything instantaneously, in other words, liquidate it, turn it into cash, yeah. you would, if you sold all of it, you would have had a $17 billion loss, which they didn't have the capital to cover, and they'd be liquid from a capital perspective. Um, so this, this, was, this isn't normal. Uh, normal banks don't have that kind of concentration in investments. And also normal, normally banks wouldn't have that kind of interest rate risk by betting long on those bonds I mean, almost all of it was long. Yeah. And you coupled with, we went into a very rapidly raising, uh, rising interest rate environment. Absolutely. So that created a lot of pressure. And a lot of us also social media noise and other people talking about, how's this bank going to do? They have all these, this unrealized loss. Sure. Um, the other piece of Silicon Valley, so they had to deal with that. And if they were to turn, unwind all those on March 9th, say to be able to turn those back into cash to pay depositors, you would have taken the loss. They couldn't take the loss because it would have wiped out their equity. So that was a problem. 
The other interesting thing about Silicon Valley was they had somewhere between 35 and 40,000 business customers. Most all their clients were business customers. Okay. Um, they're also very interrelated. So these entities, a lot of these entities tied back to, you know, they, they knew each other. They had some of the same VC firms. They had some of the same investment firms involved with them. So this, this interdependence between the, in this community first, very small. So you're talking less than 40,000 business clients. And uh, just to put it, the majority of the clients for this company for Silicon Valley were uh, business were business clients. A normal bank about 200 billion would have millions of customers, probably closer to 10 billion, 10 million. 10 million. So very concentrated. And then because they were all very interrelated, once this run started happening, it happened extremely fast and across the entire portfolio. Um, yeah. So did they have background? Were they prepared to be a $200 billion bank? Why were they invested so heavily in long-term instruments? Um, and then this interrelationship all played together and created a situation, which was how does a $200 billion bank go, you know, go bankrupt in two days? Yeah. yeah. Um, Do you think the the smaller size of the, the banking community and the amount of, of funds or revenue that they were bringing into it had anything to do with it or had a lot to do with it? It did. I, I actually, and I, I don't know anyone there, so this is not a, any kind of insights on that. But one of the things, just by the, you know, this bank had a great relationship with its entrepreneurial ecosystem. Yeah. Right. They created. They were beyond a bank. I think to the entrepreneurial world, they were yeah. uh, making connections for people, creating sure. environments sure. where people who wouldn't otherwise have access had access. I mean, this is. Silicon Valley was beyond. It was more of an ecosystem or an environment where scale up. For the most part, and you know, high growth could thrive. Thrive, absolutely. and that played a part in it because I don't think in their mind they ever imagined that these, their partners, their clients that they you know had this ecosystem with, would ever run from them the way they did. And that, that's not a very good risk management strategy at all. But they probably had that feeling. You know, will all these people run? You know, make a run in this bank, especially when they're very smart. You know, intelligent financially savvy investors and they did yeah yeah okay so i mean now that we're kind of i don't necessarily want to say past it but you know we're, we're kind of past that date and everything uh hindsight is 2020 um but what have you seen the government's role kind of be in kind of stepping in in solving this situation uh, well, they did a couple things. One, they backfilled. Uh, so when FDIC took receivership on Monday morning, they created a new legal entity, which allowed all the depositors of Silicon Valley to continue their daily cash operations, which was extremely important because they had to do things like payroll, pay vendors, and keep functioning to stay in existence. So that was probably the first, you know, tactical operational thing, but very important if you're a depositor. Um, the second thing they did was they created the uh, bank term funding program. The bank term funding program essentially allowed a bank or other, I think it's just banks, might be include credit unions, but essentially allowed them an instrument, the Federal Reserve, that they could take those bonds and essentially collateralize a draw from the Federal Reserve in terms of cash with the bonds at the original bond amount. So not the current depreciated amount or lowered value because the interest rate changed, but back to the original amount, which means okay. they wouldn't have to take that loss. Okay, uh, that provides a tremendous amount of uh, liquidity availability for general banking system. Um, and in general, the banking system is extremely sound. Mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley was it, it, it was a kind of unique situation with its business model. 
but also how they chose to make those investments. Um, yeah. But between the two of those, it should be good. We still have some isolated cases. Um, but I think, you know, when we talked later about what people should do around this, there's some things that if you were uh, if you were a founder or investor, uh, you know, it has a lot of cash that you need to keep growing that you should be doing. Yeah. Well, let's talk. I mean, let's talk about it. Let's not let's not wait. No. So let's go into it. So, yeah, as a founder, you know, you we work with entrepreneurs uh, every day. You see entrepreneurs, I'm sure. But like as a founder, like what what are words of advice or like how do you how do you prepare yourself, you know, for something like this to happen again? Or if something like this does happen, how do you, you know, make sure that you stay afloat? Yep. So one of the things I would do first is I would establish someone in the formal role of the treasurer that is currently thinking about what, what your cash is. And actually, these high interest rates, are you getting the appropriate return for that cash? Because you just don't want it sitting around not being used. But you also have to work with your board and your investors, get the appropriate controls in place. Uh, the second is utilize the products that are available currently. So uh, at your banks, there's a group There's a group in your bank called a treasury management department. And not to be confused, there's a treasury function at the bank that manages the bank's cash but there's a product line called treasury management. It's usually part of the commercial world, business banking world, invest, but it's on the commercial side of the bank usually. Um, that, that treasury management team, it has a set of products that can allow you better ways to manage your cash. One of them is called an insurance cash suite, an ICS account. Okay. I'm sure I got that right. Yep, that's right. Okay. Um, <laughs> the ICS, we all call it ICS. ICS accounts are essentially a way that Say you have a, uh, say you have ten million dollars at a bank. You put ten million dollars in your bank. ICS works with a network of banks that are in the network, and they essentially distribute those balances from an FDIC perspective across the network. So all those balances are two hundred fifty thousand below. Okay. Um, so you have federal, you have FDIC coverage in all ten million. It just so happens to be that ten million spread out, but the 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 product allows you to manage it as if it wasn't. Um, so you can still transact. You can still interact with your primary bank. You don't have to interact with 50 banks. Um, but I, I would use that ICS product if I were if I were someone that wanted to be sure all your deposits were covered. You're going to get a slightly lower rate uh, because in order to run the product, it, it costs a little bit. A little bit more. Um, but it is a really good product that's existed for a while. Um, I think it's called Interfi now. It used to be called Promontory. Okay. Uh, runs it. And they also run a product called CDARS. If you're investing in CDs, it does the same thing except on time deposits. Okay. I would definitely leverage those products and talk to your treasury management team at your bank. Um, these things have existed for a while. And if it's something you're worried about is, you know, if my bank, am I going to have FDIC coverage? This yeah. will take care of that. Just take care of it. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, the last thing you want, you spend so much time building your company and, and growing and everything like that. And the last thing you want to see is it, you know, collapsing <laughs> due to, due to financial crisis. So um, yeah, definitely good, good note on, um, you know, what to, what entrepreneurs should be looking for, what they should be doing moving forward. And I just kind of got like an arbitrary question here. How likely do you think is something like this to happen again? I mean, of course we've seen it happen and I don't know if anyone could have predicted this time, but how likely is this to happen again? Um, it's probably not likely. Um, you may have an isolated case. I've not been through all the, um, all the various banks. So I don't know exactly, but it, it would be unlikely. No, I'll just actually go back to something just on this. So sure. the failure of not to recognize that interest rate risk was a management failure. Uh, I don't know why they weren't underwinding those positions earlier because they could have taken a less loss then. And I don't know why the board didn't see this. 
I mean, when you have a $17 billion unrealized loss in your book, that was as of 1231, rates moved up from then. So it got bigger. Yeah. So I don't know why the regulators... Like a red flag should be going on. Should have been. And this is all, all on publicly available information. Yeah. This wasn't like it was something that you couldn't see. Sure. It wasn't there. Um, but so it's not, it's not really likely. Um, I do think, though, people... the I, Because I think the economy is slowing down a bit. Right? We can yeah. talk about recession, not recession. But the overall money supply is going to slow a bit. And I think that's part of intentional as rates go up. And so think about your cash as something that's not going to be as easy to get. I think people have already realized that because when we look at multiples and valuations, those things have come down. And uh, it needs to be treated not like, you know, because we've been in a 0% Fed funds position with the exception of 2016 and 17 for like the last 15 years. Yeah, that's not a normal position to be. A normal Fed funds rate would be somewhere around three, three and a half. Not saying that that's where it's going, but over time, that's generally where it is. That's the norm, though, right? That's the norm. Oh, wow. And you said we've been at zero for the past 15 years? 15 years since 2008. There's there's a little bit of a rise that we were having going into 16, 17, but it was basically zero. That was an extremely abnormal environment. Now, the, the trick of that, though, is if you haven't been around this for more than 15 years, you would not know that because what you're used to is 0% environments. Yeah, it's just like when people think about mortgages. A 7% mortgage historically is a pretty good mortgage rate. Sure. Most people would think, remember, well, a three, you, know, you should be able to get a 3 or 4% mortgage rate. Well, that that's not normal, normal. but it was our normal for 15 years. Mm. Um, so that's going to, you know, that cost of capital and that cost of cash is going to be higher. Um, so so what I'm hearing is is the cost of doing business is going to change. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, I mean, we've all experienced cost of doing business. I mean, the inflationary aspects on wages, as you guys probably have, you know, most of, most of the um, entrepreneurs out there have been going through this price wage war we've had around town for a while. Um it just seemed to keep going up. I think we're stabilizing a little bit. And, and as you have large IT, you know, technology kind of layoffs. Sure. Some of that will probably rebalance itself. But, um, you know, just you just can't have zero interest rates forever because, you know, that's a, that's a sub-inflation rate, basically, which you just don't have for a long period of time. And I think that hangover from that is what we're, we're going to be, we're getting into and we're going to have to deal with for a little while. Sure, sure. And one thing you mentioned earlier that I kind of want to touch on, because, you know, the whole theme of kind of our season in the podcast right now is investing in a recession, right? And so you mentioned that, um, you know, holding on to cash, right, or cash isn't flowing as easily. Any advice um, or insight to entrepreneurs as as they kind of prepare to invest or not invest during a recession? Um, I'll go with my own personal. I'm an entrepreneur. We bootstrap most of it. We have some small investors, but you know, cash is king and you live by it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't make bets on your cash. I would invest it uh, in places that you feel comfortable that you do have coverage. And I would, you know, even if you you don't get the highest return you you read in the newspaper, you get one that you can live with. Um, I would say that, that that would be some place I would start because you don't want to start trading your cash and trading the market or things like that. Hopefully they have policies in place, but they don't do that. Um, because you, as an entrepreneur, you're good at what you do. You yeah. may not be good, uh, even though how you know, almost all entrepreneurs are very smart, very motivated, risk-taking kind of people. Absolutely. But, but you may not be good at picking stocks and you may not be good at um, 
finding the right investment. That's why I go back to that CFO, your CFO, because they can perform this role, or even a dedicated treasurer that's managing this for you because they're better at they are professional. There are professionals that do that. Yeah, that's their job, right? <laughs> yeah, and they're really good at it. And you know, their profile is probably different than mine. A lot less risk taking, and a lot. But for your cash, you know, don't make don't make bets on your on your cash. Sounds about. I don't know if that helps them, but. Um, it will get a little tighter. I mean, it's going to get lending will probably come down a bit mm. because there's just not going to be availability of cash in the you know in the market right now to lend. And as that gets tighter and tighter, there will be less lending. And the lending that does occur will be at a higher rate than most people are used to. And I think all of that adjustment is going to be real. Um, but you know, economies expand, they contract a bit, and they re-expand again. It's part of the business cycle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, and I think that's just the ebbs and flows of economy, right? You know, it just it, it rises up and it, it falls back down. So um, I think what's key is always being prepared. So, um, no, I, I appreciate your insight today, Mac, and, and all the information you share with us. How can our listeners uh, find you or, or your work at White Clay? Um, so if you want to email me just and ask a question about any of this, Mac, M-A-C at whiteclay.com. W-H-I-T-E-C-L-A-Y.com. Uh, if you want, that's probably, email is probably the best way to get me. Um, phone, I don't actually, I don't like carrying phones around because I find them extremely distracting. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. People laugh at me. They're like, you don't have a phone with you. I'm like, I, I can't handle it. My <laughs> mind will get consumed by the immediate, the immediate kind of reaction and satisfaction of it, that interaction. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I got it. So, but if you want to email me, feel free to email me on this. Um, but I, I do think, uh, back to your topic of preparing for the recession, you need to think about cash getting more scarce, and you need to think about runways, and you need to think what happens when the consumers stop or slow their spending. We yes. haven't seen that yet. We haven't. And it's going to happen because eventually they're going to run out of cash, and there won't be as much access to loans. Yes. So I would prepare for that. I mean, the last 15 years is not indicative of a normal time period. And uh, we're going to go to something different. And that's okay. That's part of life. And that's how we all evolve. So. Right. Yeah, right. Change is part of evolution, but being ready for it, right? <laughs> that's true. Very true. Well, awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today, Mac, and your insight. This has been great. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Multiplier Effect podcast and uh, catch us next time. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Thank everyone. You.